Great to see you guys. How are we doing this morning? Okay, four of us are doing like awesome. The rest are like, I'm still waking up. It's cool. Hey, you, you want to know one of the quickest ways to get my wife and me to argue? Do you want to know? Fine, I won't tell you. I won't tell you. All you have to do is ask us this question. When was your first date? The problem is we both have different definitions of the word date. For my wife, a date, you guys are already laughing. Why, you guys hate on my wife? For my wife, a date is when a guy comes to a girl and uses the, like actual words, will you go on a date with me? What is that? Will you go on a date with me? Receives a thumbs up and then they go on a romantic, magical date together. An outing full of Ed Sheeran music playing softly in the background. <laughs> That's her date. For me, a date is being together, period. That's it. For watching an NBA playoff game, baby, that's a date. We're done. We have different definitions of the word date. So now you can imagine, if you go back with me in time, before my wife and I were dating, she called me up and said, hey, I really want this piece of furniture. It's really heavy. I can't carry it on my own. Would you like to go with me? I thought, she is totally into me right now, like totally into me. So I go out with her to uh, pick up this huge piece of furniture. I'm lugging this thing around the furniture store, right? And you can imagine the shock on my face when she turns to me at the end of the night and she says, you know, you're like a little brother to me. Now on the outside, I said, oh, thank you, that's so kind. On the inside, I was like, did I just get friend zoned? Or is this like a real life episode of Stranger Things? I can't tell the difference, right? We have different definitions of the word date. Now here was the problem. I wrongly assumed that a date meant something that it was really not, you see, that was the problem. Now why share that story? Because in John 15, where we've been spending our time the last couple of weeks here, Jesus has been explaining what it means to follow him and how then his followers should live according to his promises in life. And now at the end of the chapter, the end of John 15, Jesus begins explaining what it's like to follow him so that we don't assume wrongly about what it's actually like. To put it another way, the end of John 15 gives us a three-part answer to this question. Here it is. What is it like to follow Jesus? What is it like to follow Jesus? Let's begin John 15. If you don't have your Bible turned up there, I encourage you to do that now. And beginning in verse 18, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Everything Jesus is saying here could be summarized into one sentence. 
It is impossible to follow Jesus and feel at home in the world. By using the word world, Jesus is not talking about the planet Earth. He's talking about our moral order, the way we live, what we love, how we treat one another, all apart from God. This simply means that the values and priorities of the world are vastly different than the priorities and values of the kingdom of God. So vast are these from one another that the Bible actually says it is like the difference between darkness and light. And what does the world think of those that follow Jesus? Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now the word hate here in the original language literally means to hold in disfavor or to have little regard for. Hate. Why is this the case, you ask? Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because, here it is, they do not know him who sent me. We've got to take a step back from the text at this point, and we just have, we have to be, make the obvious statement. Jesus obviously has no idea how to become popular. No idea. If he were writing a book today, the title would probably be something like, Your Best Life Now, subtitle, until you follow me and the world will hate you. Not a New York Times bestseller by any stretch of the imagination, but we know Jesus is not in the business of growing a following, is he? So he says to his disciples, listen, if you're gonna follow me, you need to know something. You need to know the world is going to discredit, despise, and disregard you. In other words, the world will hate you. So back to the original question, what is it like to follow Jesus? Jesus tells us, Following Jesus is hard. It is hard. G.K. Chesterton famously remarked that Jesus promised his disciples three things. First, that they would be completely fearless. Second, that they'd be absurdly happy. And three, that they'd be in constant trouble. We love, let's just be honest, we love to hear about how there is great joy and satisfaction in Jesus, don't we? We love to sing and listen to songs about Jesus making us whole and being with us. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, are they? But I am telling you there is a reason why you don't turn on a Christian radio channel and hear positive, encouraging, and if you follow Jesus, it's really hard. Because many Western Christians, and perhaps some of us, have bought into a version of Christianity that is all roses without thorns, all joy without sorrow, and all comfort without difficulty. The result of this kind of belief always, I say always, ends in discouragement or despair because Jesus makes it clear, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be hard. That's the point. After all, he says in verse 20, look with me, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The point is that if Jesus was not spared from hardship for living for another kingdom, what makes us think that we're exempt? 
And maybe you're here this morning and you just came into this place feeling so discouraged because of how people in your workplace, maybe it's your school, maybe it's even your own home, how people have been treating you because you follow Jesus. And if that's you, you need to underline verse 19 in your Bible. I love this verse, verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They'd love you, got no problem with you, you're like us. But because you are not of the world, important statement, but I chose you out of the world, sovereign grace. Therefore, because of these things, the world hates you. If you claim to follow Jesus but never experience hardship because of following him, listen, you are probably not. Jesus is saying that because his followers are not of this world, they shouldn't expect to feel at home here. Brother and sister, when it's hard to follow Jesus, when it's really hard to follow Jesus, your faith isn't being challenged, it's being confirmed. Your faith is not being siphoned. No, it's being solidified, you see. On the other hand, if you claim to follow Jesus, but you feel really comfortable in this world, you have a big problem. C.S. Lewis wisely writes, he says, prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while in reality it is finding its place in him. What is it like to follow Jesus? Point Blake, following Jesus is hard, isn't it? It's hard. And if it's not, you're probably not following who you think you are. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop describing what it's like to follow him. He continues on in verse 22. Look with me. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that when the religious leaders of the day saw him, heard his teaching and witnessed his miracles, they could not now claim that they had never heard the truth. Therefore, they're guilty of sin. So much so, he says, continues on, he says, whoever hates me hates my father. If you've been around church any amount of time, you know Colossians 1 is really clear. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Such that to reject the truth in person of Jesus is to reject the truth in person of God the Father. This is the point, which means one of the most dangerous places you could be this morning is here, is here. Why? Because the one thing truth can't do is nothing. Truth will either soften your heart or harden your heart. There's no in between. It is either option A or option B. All of us, me included, you will either hear the truth of God, have your heart softened toward him, delight in him, love him, want to serve him, obey him, love his people, 
or you'll hear the truth about God and you will harden your heart towards him. It's no wonder why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, do not harden your hearts. Friends, this is the truth Jesus is getting at and the apostle Paul says something similar later on. He says in the epistles in aroma that, that the gospel is either an aroma that brings death or an aroma that brings life. This is his exact point. Truth will either soften your heart or like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it will harden your heart. Now this did not take Jesus by surprise. He was not surprised that the religious leaders heard him, saw his miracles, and they walked away with hard hearts. No, he wasn't surprised. In fact, he prophesied it. Verse 25. He says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What is Jesus saying? He's quoting from the Old Testament. Psalm 69, verse four, where David says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. In other words, Jesus, by quoting Psalm 69.4, is just solidifying what he's already said. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who has condescended to man only to be hated without reason, without a cause. The point is that in the same way Jesus experienced alienation, persecution, and eventually death, his followers should expect no different. But how are his disciples to endure such hardship? Look at verse 26. He continues on, he says, but when the helper, it's the Holy Spirit, comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The point is clear, following Jesus is hard, but it's not lonely. Why? Because every Christian is given the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says will bear witness about him. Now what I find interesting is that the word witness could literally be translated to mean martyr, martyr. Now for some of us who have been around church, we know that word, but for others, maybe what is a martyr? A martyr essentially, bare bones definition, is a person who dies for their faith. That's a martyr. So what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit will help followers of Jesus endure persecution as they proclaim the truth of the gospel, even if they have to die for it. What sort of persecution are we talking about? Once again, Jesus just keeps building on the argument. Look at verse two. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Do you see any of that in our day and age? People slaughtering Christians all over the world and thinking that it's worship. Jesus talked about that. Verse three, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What's it like to follow Jesus? It's hard. And secondly, following Jesus is costly. Costly. Jesus is warning the disciples before him and all that would come after that following him could eventually end in death. 
This is precisely why Jesus told his disciples, listen, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and what? Follow me. Fast forward from when Jesus said that 2,000 years and we find that history tells us Jesus was spot on. It doesn't take but a short walk through the corridors of church history to find that countless men and women died for their faith in Jesus. Here are four. Stephen, remember him? The first Christian martyr was stoned to death in Acts 6 because he preached the gospel. He's killed for his faith. John Wycliffe, the man who translated the Bible into common English after dying of a stroke while preaching, the Roman Catholic Church was so ticked off at this guy that they literally took him from his grave and burned him. Guys, this is why church history is important. This is a gift. And if it weren't for the blood that was shed by brothers and sisters that one day we will meet in heaven, we would probably not have this Bible and we would probably not be meeting here. We owe a great debt to brothers and sisters that have given their lives for us, don't we? John Huss, we learned about him several years ago at Think. He was known as the swan of the Reformation. He was burned at the stake for opposing the views of the Roman Catholic Church. And then most recently, Bonnie Witherall, a missionary to Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, was shot and killed because she was a follower of Jesus. The list could go on and on and on. Here's the point. The gospel, do not be mistaken, the gospel is not a message of self-fulfillment, but self-denial. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you will pay a cost. Following him is costly. Now the reality is that for many of us in this room, we're not going to die because of following Jesus. Some of us might. God might call some of you into some risky places. I really hope he does. And you're gonna give your life for following Jesus and advancing the mission of the gospel. But for the majority of us, that's not gonna happen. However, do not be mistaken, there will be a cost to pay to follow him. What will the cost be exactly? Well, there's a lot of things I could share. But if you're taking notes, I wanna give you really fast three common ways it will cost you to follow Jesus. Three common ways it will cost you to follow Jesus. Real fast, first, number one, popularity. Popularity. Maybe you're a student here this morning and at your school, people have started to find out you follow Jesus. And they're not happy about that. And as a result, you become the center of their insults and jokes. Maybe now you're no longer considered cool because you refuse to do things that you know would displease God. But it doesn't matter, people disregard you anyways because you follow Jesus. Listen, if you follow Jesus, you might lose popularity. Three common ways it'll cost you to follow Jesus. First, popularity. Secondly, people. People. Maybe you started following Jesus recently and the people closest to you haven't. Maybe it's a parent, a spouse, a coworker, a close friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Whatever the case may be, because you've started to love and obey God, you feel, you feel like those relationships are starting to change and maybe even end. Brothers and sisters, if you follow Jesus, it could cost you people. Three common ways will cost you to follow Jesus. First, popularity. Secondly, people. But third, most of all, power. Power. Maybe you have a really nice job with a really fat paycheck. 
And one day your superior comes to you and asks you to do something that you know will compromise your faith in Jesus. You respectfully decline and now as a result, maybe you lose money, authority, maybe even you lose your job. If you follow Jesus, it might cost you power. What Jesus is saying is that if you follow him, point blank, it will be costly. And the reason why he is telling us these things is verse four, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised when we have to pay a cost to follow him in this world. He doesn't want you to be shocked by that, so he tells you. So what is it like to follow him? It's hard and it's costly. You'll be mistreated, disfavored, and maybe even killed. But notice what he says in verse one. I have said all these things. It's hard and costly to follow me. I have said all these things. Why? To keep you from falling away. That is a glorious text. In other words, Jesus does not want his disciples to experience how hard and costly it is to follow him and for them to turn away in the end. That's not a win for Jesus. Why? Because there is, as Ephesians says, a glorious inheritance awaiting every Christian. Listen, news flash to you this morning. This will be the best news you're gonna hear all week, promise you. Unless the San Antonio Spurs somehow make the playoffs, it would be miraculous. Probably not happen. Here's the best news you'll hear all week. I don't care what's in your bank account. If you're a Christian, you're filthy rich. And there's coming a day where you're gonna cash out and it's gonna be awesome, right? And Jesus bought that for all of us, didn't he? An inheritance that the Bible says, here's how the Bible describes this inheritance. It's imperishable, it's pretty awesome, right? undefiled and unfading. And oh, by the way, it's kept in heaven for you. (laughs) Your name is written on this huge package of the new heavens and new earth, and Jesus is saying, I'm keeping that for you. So I'm gonna tell you, it's really hard and costly to follow Jesus, but the reason why I'm telling you that, because I don't want you to fall away, because what's coming in the life to come is gonna blow your socks off. That's what he's saying, kind of. So following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is costly, amen? But oh boy, following Jesus is worth it. Worth it. No matter who you are, what you do, or where you're from, whenever you experience pain for the sake of something or someone, you will always ask yourself this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I had to answer this question my junior year of high school. Had to. Junior year of high school, I had to answer this question. Because in my school, a letterman jacket was like the nonverbal way of saying I'm athletic. Just what it was. And because the only way you received a letterman jacket is by making a varsity sports team. So everybody knew this guy's got a letterman jacket. He's awesome, right? 
Now, this probably won't surprise you, but my athletic career peaked at about age 10. <laughs> like before age 10, I was the Michael Jordan of everything. After age 10, I was Michael Jordan of nothing. That's just how the cards got played, my life, okay? So one day, I'm sitting in probably a history class or something, dozing off, and I start thinking, you know what, I have this glorious idea. If I can find a sport that is easy to play, requires little athleticism and like minimal to no running, <laughs> I could make the varsity team, get a letterman jacket, and people will think I'm athletic. This is an awesome plan, right? So what sport did I choose? Soccer. <laughs> not, a bad, not, 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 not a good idea. About 30 minutes into this so-called tryout, which basically was like, hey, run your face off until you die. <laughs> about 30 minutes into this tryout, I, I realized three things about soccer. Um, it's not easy to play, requires a heck of a lot of athleticism, and a whole lot of running and running and running and running until you die. That's soccer in a nutshell. So about halfway through this thing, I mean, I'm, I'm just running and I'm like, oh gosh, this, what was I thinking? I don't even want a letterman jacket anymore, you know? And all of a sudden the 65 year old coach just comes sprinting out of nowhere like an angel. And it's like, it's like running step for step with me and it's like he's not even breathing. I'm like, what are you made of, you know? And he says, merchant, I heard from someone that the only reason you're out here is because you want a letterman jacket. Is that true? And I thought, I'm, I'm gonna die at the hands of a 65-year-old man who's a robot. Like, this is what's gonna happen. So I told him, I was like, yeah, like, I really want a letterman jacket. That's the only reason I'm out here. I hate soccer. Haven't even kicked a ball yet. I thought I was gonna do that. And then he said something. He said, merchant, you need to remember, if you're gonna make this team, that what you're going to get is far going to surpass what you're going through right now. So he told me. So what did I do? I kept running, running, and running. And eventually I made the team. <laughs> true story. This is a totally true story. I'm not making this up. Um, on the last day of the tryouts, you know, everybody's dropping like flies, right? I mean, everybody's dying. I thought it was a great idea to drink chocolate milk before I ran. <laughs> yeah, not going to tell you how that ended. So... At the end, the coach meets with everybody one-on-one -on -one and like, you know, nope, you suck, you're not making it, you suck, you're not making it, you're okay, you'll make it, you know? And I'm looking at all these guys and they, I mean, they're jacked out of their minds, six packs. I'm like, dude, I weigh like 95 pounds, I could barely run, like, I'm still wheezing to this day because of all the running I did. And the coach sat down with me, no joke, and he said, Merchant, um, you know, we've cut a lot of different people, but we got one spot on the team and, uh, I want to give that to you. And I thought, I am awesome. And he said, and then he, and then he goes, oh, he says, but the reason we're going to let you on a team is because we think you have a great personality. <laughs> I'm like, just punch me in the face. Just punch me in the face right now. Might as well. It hurt less, you know? Question, what, what got me through? Remembering that the glory ahead of me was greater than the pain in front of me. So certainly true of Polycarp, who was one of the first recorded Christian martyrs in the history of the church, he understood this. He was marched into a large stadium with thousands of people screaming for him to be burned at the stake because of his faith in Jesus. And as they marched him in, he was calm, 
He prayed for the people around him. As they brought him into the center of the stadium with people just ringing out, kill him, kill him, burn him, burn him. History records that the people wanted to nail his hands to the stake so that he would not run when they lit him on fire. And he said, that's not necessary. He said, for 86 years, my God has been faithful to me and I'm not turning my back on him now. Even if I have to walk into death with him, I'll do it. And he was burned at the stake and he silenced, history tells us, he silenced the crowd of the masses in that stadium today because he remembered the glory ahead of him was greater than the pain in front of him. So it's true of the Apostle Paul. He knew that it was hard and costly to follow Jesus. He tells us that he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and abandoned at sea. Anybody signing up for that? That'd be a bad ministry to have in church. Hey, what are you, what's your ministry all about? Well, you're gonna get stoned, we're gonna shipwreck you, and we're gonna throw you out of the sea by yourself. Nobody's signing up for that, but that's Paul's Christian experience, his missionary life. But he did not fall away from the truth. Why? Romans 8, 18. Look at this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. You know what Paul's saying? He's like, I got a scale. I'm putting all of the hardship, all of the pain, all of the things it cost me to follow Jesus on this side, and I'm putting the promise of God on this side of what he's promised for me in the new heavens and new earth, and I gotta tell you, that doesn't hold a candle to that. And he presses on. See, Paul knew that the glory ahead of him was greater than the pain in front of him, so he kept going. So you say, well, Brad, what does this, this mean for me? What's this mean for us? Two things. First, if you're experiencing hardship and it costs you to follow Jesus right now and you're right in the thick of it, number one, hold on. Hold on. If you're experiencing how hard and costly it is to follow Jesus, hold on, endure, keep going. Don't give up. Don't give up. My wife and I remind each other often that God gives moment by moment grace. In other words, God will give you what you need right when you need it, not a second sooner and not a second later. And aren't you thankful for that? God pays his bills on time, on the dot. Right when you need something, God gives it to you. So what should we do? We hold on. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, hold on. Okay, now turn to your other neighbor like you mean it and tell him to hold on. <laughs> hold on. Go into every day reminding yourself that the glory ahead of me is greater than the pain in front of me, and you hold on to Jesus. So first, you hold on. Secondly, what do you do? You look up. You look up. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, anyone who places their faith in him is given the promise of an inheritance so glorious that when you experience it, you will not be like a child on Christmas morning expecting toys, but gets clothes instead. There will not be a single soul in heaven that will ask this question. Is this it? This is precisely why the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, 
Oh, how we should long for the full enjoyment of God in paradise. If we could see that land of promise, we should need patience to be content to live here any longer. You know what he's saying? If God were to step down from heaven and take you up with him and let you see what the, what the new heavens and new earth are gonna be like, and then he sent you back here, you would be so impatient. You'd be like, I can't, I can't wait to get out of this. It'd be like the, 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 the credits before a movie. You're like, let's just get this thing over with. I want the main event. And that's what Thomas Watson is saying, that there is a glorious inheritance for everyone who follows Jesus, such that if God showed it to you, he'd blow your socks off. That's the point. So we look up by faith. We remember that the suffering we endure in this life for Jesus isn't even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed, is it? So, what is it like to follow Jesus? It's hard, it's costly, but oh man, it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we need eyes to see and ears to hear this truth this morning. We need to remember that there is an inheritance for us treasured up in heaven for each of us who know you by faith. We need to remember that, but we also need to remember, Lord, it is really hard and costly to follow you. So would you give us grace and insight from your Holy Spirit for these things? Help us to believe that they're true, because they are. So give us grace for that. And right now as I pray, if you just keep your head bowed, your eyes closed, if you say, man, right now, I'm in a season of life where it is really hard and really costly to follow Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right where you're at, right before the Lord? Just raise your hand, be like, yep, Lord, that's me. Keep your hand up, I wanna pray for you. Father, I just pray for these hands that are raised to the heavens. I pray that you'd give them grace. Give them grace right when they need it. I pray that you'd help them to hold on, to endure. Help them to look up, to remember your promise to them. And give them grace even this week as they fight the good fight and follow you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.